but we'll start that way tonight. I'll introduce what you'll be reading this coming week. And for those of you who are new to this, our first series of Wednesdays together for Roadmaps to Bible Reading New Testament will be a harmony of the life of Christ from the four Gospels. So you were to read um, about the early years, very brief, really from the beginning chapter of Matthew and the first couple of Luke, primarily. And if you had anything you wanted to talk about or ask about, whatever it is, make comments on, that's what we're going to be doing in a little bit. So then I will be introducing now, if you're with me in the notebook, we're going to turn to, in these new notebooks that we handed out, that would be page 19. And for those of you who had them from the past, it would probably be, uh, I don't know if it would be, the old notebook was it? 15. 15? That sound right? Yeah. So on top, it should be a Roman numeral tool that say Nazareth ministry and early Judean ministry. And uh, just pretend like you can see this on a PowerPoint screen. I'll do it verbally. So what I'd like you to do is um, you can use your pen or pencil, and you know how to make it like a bracket, right? You know, it, okay? You want to bracket the first four, A through D, together. Bracket them on the outside of the outline. And then next to your bracket, write the words, in the south. Does that make sense? And then you bracket E and F together. Got that? And put in the north. Got that? You can each have your own notebook if you wanted, David G. Oh, and you want to share? Okay. Because there's there, we have plenty. Okay. Crunch down, we make more. So. Um, and then you bracket G through J, G, H, I, and J, those four. And once again, put in the south. And then letters, the next four, K, L, M, N, bracket those and put in the north. And then the obvious one letter, O, that's left over Jerusalem here once again down south. That makes sense to everybody? Here we go. So the map that coordinates with what I just said would be on the next page. If you turn it over, this is something good for just review for our Bible reading and knowledge. And the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, the Holy Land, is not as big as a lot of people might think. Basically, if you are, um, if, if you look at this, this is a this is a black and white with, right? Your map you're looking at. You got a picture. I always picture the Holy Land as like a doorstop up on end, <laughs> and right down the middle, top to bottom, is a spiny ridge of hills. And you can't see that topographically on a map like this, but that's what you have to imagine. And if you're on that spiny ridge, that's where a lot of the, some of the big cities when you get down south were. Jerusalem would be straight across from the top of the Dead Sea. You see where the Dead Sea is, and you can see Jerusalem on your map? That would be on that spiny ridge. The distance from the Mediterranean coast to the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, right at that spot, is about 70 miles. So you figure like Milwaukee to Madison. That's all it is. <laughs> and if you're going to go from Jerusalem down to the Jordan River, it is super downhill. So if you're in the Holy Land, obviously the Mediterranean Sea and the coast, you're at sea level, <laughs> Duh, right? <laughs> and then you're, you're gently going up, 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 if you're going to Jerusalem, and now you're on that spiny ridge, north and south, but you're up at Jerusalem. But to go down to the Jordan River is a precipitous downhill journey. Now, when Jesus tells a story later on, we're going to come across this, of the Good Samaritan, you know that story where the, that, that, that dude gets beaten up and he's left in a ditch, and a religious priest or whatever comes walking by and turns his back on him and leaves, right? And another religious guy, and finally a Samaritan comes along and helps him. 
This is on the road in Jesus' story, on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a downhill, whiny, rocky cliff, because when you go from Jerusalem, which is like a couple thousand above sea level, and you're going to go down in about 15, 20 miles to the Dead Sea, when you get to the Dead Sea, that's 1,800 feet below sea level. It's a precipitous drop. And the territory along the Dead Sea, below sea, the Dead Sea for a reason, the water from the Jordan is fresh and comes flowing in, but there's no outlet, and salty and alkaline, it's just, I've not had the privilege to be there. Some of you people have been there, right? Some of you people have been to the Holy Land, I know the Wagners, anybody else? Um, did, you, did you swim in the Dead Sea, did you go in? Yeah. Float it. <laughs> right. But don't drink the water, right? Because that, that'll like kill you. I mean, it's really bad. Yeah. Don't shave before you go in the That would be salty and alcohol. But that's like, you know, you're really super buoyant. And uh, the Dead Sea is really Dead Sea. Not much lives there. It's just terrible. But um, along its coast, on its western edge, would be the badlands of the Holy Land. And that's what we're going to talk about in a second. Ooh, look at this. It's exciting. So everybody gets to watch while I start my computer. Here we go. I'm sorry. I got myself backwards. The Jordan River flows southwards, correct? Right. Okay. Yeah. I, <laughs> thank you. So when I, when I draw it on my own on a piece of paper or whatever, yeah. you know, I get that doorstop thing. And then when you're looking for it, you get the, a tiny little line above, and then you draw like the balloon with its straight tail. That's the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. And then a little straight banana on the bottom is the Dead Sea. So that's the water flows from north to south. No, that makes sense. I just forgot which direction. Well, guess what? This is really good that you mentioned that, August, because I'm thinking Bible terms, and I'm thinking my Bible reading and Bible stories. And so you're up north. Yeah. is where a lot of Jewish people live around the Sea of Galilee area, right? And a lot of people live in Jerusalem itself, but not in the middle. And that'll come up in one of our stories next week. Because the people who lived in the middle uh, were not necessarily where the Jewish people lived. That's, uh, that's where the Samaritans lived. Now, is it going to let me get to my files? Yes, they will. Grandpas always have to have grandchildren on there for screensaver. It's just kind of a, the law of the land, right? Here we go. Bible class, roadmaps, we'll get there. And New Testament, and PowerPoint, and Nazareth Ministry. Ta-da! This was also that the clicker would work. Now we'll see if that happens. What's showing up for you there? Nothing? Okay, look at that. That's good. And slideshow play. Something on your screen yet? Ta-da! Yes! Success. And the clicker still doesn't work. Okay. Well, we'll do it by hand. Try to advance the slides, if they will at all. Next slide. Uh, try the arrow button on this. Oh, I'm sorry. It worked. It advanced. Talk the timing of Jesus' ministry. Okay. Well, I'll do that later. It's jumping. It's doing something. We'll let that on the screen. So I'm reading in up north is this village town of Nazareth. And Mary has the angel appear. You're, you're going to be with a child and give birth to a son. You're going to give him the name Jesus. How can this be? You know, this is great. I even mentioned this in my sermon last Sunday, right? But nothing's impossible with God. That was the point. And so then because the baby is going to be born and under God's guidance, this is going to fulfill his promise that the Savior will be born in Bethlehem, which is six miles south of Jerusalem, the city where King David is from, Bethlehem. And so their ancestors, they're both descended from David in two different lines. they got to go down to Bethlehem. But... That's me looking at a map, and I'm a little kid, and I'm thinking they're going to go to Nazareth, they're going to go down to Bethlehem. But the Bible says they go up to Jerusalem. And that always bothered me a lot. You know, like, wait a minute. Aren't they, see, that's a water flowing thing, right? The Jordan River, north to south. But they go up to Jerusalem. Well, guess what? No matter where you are, you have to go up to Jerusalem because it's the highest point. 
duh, and I didn't, it didn't really register with me until years later. <laughs> no matter where you are, north, south, east, or west, if you're going to go, you're going to go up. Not north. To not, it's not doesn't mean north. It means right. uphill, right. up to Jerusalem. So that was uh, that was kind of an eye opener. And your comment, August, made me think of that. All right. Well, we just don't have really good reaction with these clickers right now. We'll try the other one. Did I put it on the end here? And if it's not going to work, it's not going to work. We'll do it by hand. Oh, oh, oh. it actually advanced. Look at that. Uh, I don't make a comment too before I introduce uh, the Nazareth ministry. About we mentioned this last week, the timing of Jesus' ministry. And if you have your Bibles handy, can you open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter two? Everybody's goes online following along. You have the Bible here, or if you have an electronic version on your phone or iPad or whatever. But John's Gospel, chapter 2. So the New Testament starts Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chapter 2. And somebody has that open and ready, John's Gospel, chapter 2. Dave, you got that? You want to read verse 13 of chapter 2? Dave, let's go. Chapter 5, verse 13? Yeah, 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And went up to Jerusalem, yeah. See, uh, but a Passover is mentioned. This is very, very near the beginning of his ministry. We're going to talk about that uh, tonight and introducing how he starts. So that, in the very beginning of his ministry, a Passover is mentioned. And then, in chapter 5, page ahead real quickly, page ahead, chapter 5, verse 1, it says he is going to go to a feast sometime later. Do you see that in your Bible? Yes? Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There you go again. Uh, for a feast. Now, what feast is this? Well, the Jewish people had festivals, feasts, festivals in the springtime and in the fall. If it is a fall festival, then then we're thinking that this next year of his ministry has had to be all compressed into like a half a year. And the first year was longer. But I think it makes sense to understand, even though it's not named here, that this must be a springtime festival. It fits better with the sequel cycle. And was it the Passover or was it Pentecost? Somewhere in the spring. That would mean the first year of his ministry is indeed a year. And that gets us to this little wheel where you have seasons, winters, you know, spring, summer, fall, can't really see maybe the months in there as easily, January in the inner circle. But John chapter 2 that Dave read for us takes us one year, and now we're at John chapter 5, so year 1 has been completed. Because another festival, likely Passover, something in the spring is mentioned. Good so far? Then if you go to chapter 6, verse 4, check in John's Gospel, 6, 4, just page ahead. And what does that say? Rachel, have you got that? Or 6-4? Um, the Jewish Passover feast was near. There it is, yeah. So once again, Passover is mentioned. And now on my little cycle on the screen, you start in the spring again with the Passovers in the spring. And you go another year, and that takes you to year two is done. So John chapter 6 that Rachel just read, <coughs> another Passover is mentioned. Year two is done. And now we're in the final year coming. So then you jump ahead to, there's, you don't have to look this one up, there's a, there's a fall festival mentioned in John chapter 7, then the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, Hanukkah, that's in December usually, uh, about two and two-thirds year of his ministry done. But finally in chapter 12, go there in your Bible, chapter 12, verse 1. And once again, the chapter starts out. Andrew, do you have that one? Or it's... Uh, yep. Uh, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, Bethany where Lazarus lived. Yep. Jesus had raised from the dead. Thank you. Yep. So that, that, now we're at Holy Week. This chapter starts where Jesus is with his friends, and they have a Sabbath supper meal, and that Saturday night, then Palm Sunday is next. So that means, according to my little PowerPoint wheel thing, We've got year three, and now he's ready to die. 
that's how we, John's gospel gives us the Passovers. And that's how we know that Jesus basically has a three-year public ministry before he's on the cross. So with that little bit of trivia, I'm going to introduce in your notebook, starting on page, that was the new notebook version is 19, and uh, the old version would be 15, the Nazareth ministry. And you did bracket down the sides, so just so that you can see a little bit more, I'm going to put up on the screen what you have in your notebook on that page. And your assignment then would be, you'd be reading the Bible readings, the scripture references that are on the right side column. You see that? So you got Matthew's got an account, uh, as does Mark and Luke, about the Jesus baptism and temptation in the wilderness. And then there's a lot of reading about John in John's gospel. And then later on, you can see that uh, John the Baptist ministry is involved here in imprisonment. And when Jesus heads back up north, we're in John chapter 4. So again, these, these readings that you're going to do for the coming week aren't super long, but that's the sequence of chronological that's happening. So what's happening in this first year? There aren't a whole lot of super events that we know about, but John's Gospel fills it in. So uh, I've been this bracketing before, and thankfully you did that. I didn't have the PowerPoint handy, but okay. So you're going to read these references, I just said, for the Nazareth ministry and early Judean ministry. <coughs> So basically, in that first year, he's spending time up north near his hometown, but he also, John tells us, pops in down south, and he goes back up north, and he pops in down south again, okay? So that this is all happening in year one. Like what? Well, how does he begin his ministry? This is really an interesting thing. He knew that he is the son of God in human flesh. His parents knew, but it's not made public. It's not announced to everybody, I am the world savior, I am the son of God in human flesh, till he's age 30, and at his baptism at the Jordan River, which is very likely down there where the arrow is, probably the southern part, John the Baptist is operating, and John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And next week, when you've read this, you come back, we'll talk about why it was necessary for him to go through baptism, and talk about that. His aunt and uncle knew that he was... He knew. Yeah, so yeah. they were... So Zechariah and Elizabeth... But there are other people, you know, who know, but it's not really that broadcast. It's not publicly proclaimed. But after his baptism, this is like the inauguration. This is, a, he's, it's visible, people are there, there's a crowd there, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit, and uh, this is, and the voice from heaven, this is my son, listen to him, you know, this, this is the one. And so now he publicly then proclaims wherever he goes, I am the world's savior. It starts there. But... When you start out in ministry, like when I uh, started in Saginaw, um, my uh, working with the dean of students and working and teaching in the preparatory school for two years, it, it's scary enough. But parish ministry started here, and after you're installed, you know you're just excited to go meet people and get a chance to tell people about Jesus, and it's, it's pretty exciting. How does Jesus start out his ministry? After his baptism. He's led into the wilderness area that I told you about near the Dead Sea. And for 40 days, he's constantly bombarded by Satan with temptation. I don't know if I would like to start ministry that way. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun, you know, where Satan hounds you. And, you know, when I'm a kid and I read this Bible story or being taught, and I'm still thinking to myself, this piece of cake, he's the son of God, you know, he's nothing to it, right, you know. But this is intense because he's God and man at the same time. And the devil is out to detract him from his goal. That's the whole point. Why did Jesus come into the world in the first place? Why did God take on human flesh and enter the world? You have to start in the very beginning of the Bible, and you find the fall into sin, and what does God do? He addresses the devil himself. He says, Satan, I do not like this, that you took people away from a connection to me, and they're stuck in your camp, and they can't get out. So I'm going to do something to crush your power, devil, and rescue them out of your camp and bring them back into mine. And this is what's going to happen. One descendant of the woman is going to come in the world and crush your head. Although in the process, he'll suffer. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The rest of the Old Testament scriptures unfold that in greater detail, historically, until the reality. So the whole point of God sending his son into the world is to crush Satan's power so we don't get stuck in hell or get caught in devil's clutches now, that we could be free from that and live with our God now and then forever. That's the whole point. 
So what does he do at the very beginning of his ministry? He goes into battle against Satan right in the beginning, and then three years later he's on the cross battling Satan for sure, and he's suffering hell. It's bookended by this experience of this intense, so this, this uh, 40 days of temptation in the wilderness is not insignificant. This is highly uh, important as it is a little prelude to what's going to happen three years later on the cross. It's a, it's a big deal. We'll talk more about that then next week. Jack. Real quick question. Yeah. When it says that he fasted for those 40 days, yeah. does that mean he ate nothing? I, I understand. Very, you know, very fasting much. can come across as, as like no food, no water, nothing. But fasting can also be no food, just water. Or fasting can be eliminating most foods. So how would you survive? I mean, he's... God, of course, you could say he ate nothing, drank nothing because he's God. His human nature was able to be sustained. Or was he on a minimalistic? I don't have an answer to that. Bible just says he fasted. We'll talk more about that next week. You can get away without food, but you need water. Need water, yeah, especially if you're in that desert region. So, so this is a pretty rough territory. The wilderness of Judea, I mentioned, is. There's, there's a little view of what badlands of that looks like. And so that's heading toward the Dead Sea. Um, the Qumran discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls is along the Dead Sea here, too. Uh, that story about the 1948, I believe, was the year when an Arabic shepherd boy had one of his animals in there and go to the cave and figure out what's going on. It turns out there's these big pots in that ancient writings in it. How about that? And they were people from a Jewish sect who were hiding in caves away from the Romans, but they also preserved scripture. It was a significant thing. So the temptation uh, is recorded in a couple of the Gospels, and don't worry about the sequence, uh, changing stones into bread or getting jumping off the temple and bow down and worship me, because the sequence isn't as important as the fact that it, three are highlighted, but there's a constant 40 days of temptation. It's not just three temptations. Um, then very early, he's down south yet, and John the Baptist testifies about Jesus. Um, he chooses some early disciples to follow him. And it wasn't full-time yet. That came a little bit later, when they're back up north. Then he calls them, follow me, full-time. But the initial invitation to follow him. So these early disciples are Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. And some people speculate that Nathaniel may have another name, which is not uncommon, Bartholomew. Like Simon and Peter. Simon is his Hebrew name and Peter is his Greek name. Same guy. Um, then he's up north for the wedding where the first miracle takes place. And you'll be reading about that this week. So I'm not going to go into great detail about that. You can ask questions about it next week. What that may have looked like up there up north. He's back down south and he clears the temple. Here's another interesting little tidbit. Um, Many of you, if you've done any Bible reading or study or grew up in it, you know that Jesus cleansed the temple, right? Did you know that he did it twice? He did it at the beginning of his ministry, and then he did it at the end in Holy Week. Two times with the money changers that chased the animals out. A lot of people think that's only one, but no, it was twice. Called to repentance, then it was actually a judgment at the end, three years later. He's in Jerusalem for that. Um, that's the same situation where he's there, and uh, a, a Pharisee, this religious teacher guy, comes sneaking at night, knocks on the back door, and sits in the kitchen table with Jesus and asks some questions, Nicodemus. And that I find fascinating, too, because John's Gospel, Chapter 3, talks about Nicodemus, and he ends his Gospel with Nicodemus as one of those guys who asked for the body of Jesus to be to bury him. Book in the Gospel with the Nicodemus story is an interesting thing to me. Uh, there's early preaching time briefly mentioned then too when he's still down south and then he's going to head north normally normally Jewish people are going to travel this way to go north you go from the Jerusalem area you head to the east you cut across the Jordan River and then you go north and then you cut in over the Jordan again back to Galilee why well one thing would be you've got the spiny ridge of hills and it's not as it's a little flatter land to go along the Jordan but most especially because the people living in the middle area called Samaria, they hated. 
because most of the Jewish people of Jesus' day were just incredibly bigoted against Samaritans, against pretty much everybody else too. But. So Samaritans, what are they? So when uh, 500 years earlier, five to 600 years earlier, the remaining part of the Israelite nation is living here in this holy land, and they stuck their tongue out at God, and he said, we're gonna bring some disciplinary action in here and call you people back because you have just turned your back on me. So I'm gonna allow the Babylonian army to come in and wipe out your city and your temple and knock down the city walls and grab you and deport you to Babylon. But that's only gonna last 70 years. And after 70, those who want can come back. And that's what happened. Not everybody who was Jewish came back. Many of them stayed out in the Babylonian Empire. They're having a pretty decent life. But the ones who came back uh, found that the folks who were not deported, the Babylonians didn't clean the land out of everybody. Whom did they leave behind when they deported Jewish people into their empire? Whom did they leave behind? Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, all these worst criminals, right? And people who had either mental or physical struggles in their life or whatever, the, the poor, the, you know, whatever. They, they left the, you know, Street people, you know, whatever, they left the, the heroin addicts. They, they left those people. And they took everybody else that they could use and employ in their kingdom and their empire. Well, the remaining Jewish people intermarried with natives. So now you get this half-breed group, and they were centering their life in the middle part of the land known as Samaria. So when Jewish people came back and reestablished Jerusalem, they mainly lived down in the southern part around Jerusalem or up north around Galilee. And in the middle are the Samaritans. And Jewish people didn't even want to talk to Samaritans, much less engage them in conversation because they were just like considered half-breeds and you know, they aren't believers in the true God or what, you know, they just, they, they have germs. You know, they, just, they all got germs. They all got COVID. We don't want to, we stay socially distant from Samaritans. We don't, we don't want, we don't like them. But Jesus, no. He's got his eye on not just Jewish people, but everybody. So he doesn't go that way. He goes right through the middle of the land. He stops and he engages a Samaritan woman in conversation. It's a marvelous story. Unbelievable. He'll be reading that. Um, then he gets up north from the, in Cana, a little village near his hometown where he does the first miracle. And he does a preaching tour around Galilee. And he's rejected by his hometown people in Nazareth. <laughs> because he's in the synagogue and he reads from the prophet that says a Messiah is coming and he puts down the scroll and he says, I'm the one. I mean, what do you mean? You, we played soccer with you. You can't be the Messiah. You know, we went to school with you and everything and you don't look like a Messiah. And you don't really, we want a Messiah to be like a war hero and you're just a kid we played ball with. Come on. Of course, he hit a home run every time he went to the plate, but other than that, you know, we thought that was a little screwy, but other than that, you know, you can't be the Messiah. They're going to push him off a cliff, you know, so he, I didn't get a kick out of that one. He just walks right through the crowd. And then that's the end of headquarters at Nazareth. And uh, there's something about Nazareth I had on the screen here. It's a little nondescript village. Now it's built up around there. And there's a big church of the Annunciation is there. You stopped and saw that, too. It's supposedly the largest Christian church built in the 1960s by the Roman Catholic Church in, in sort of commemoration of when Mary heard the announcement of the birth of the, that she's pregnant in Nazareth. And it's occupied primarily by Israeli people nowadays uh, who are Arabic. They're, they're citizens of the, and there's also Jewish people there too, but that's Nazareth. So then he's back down south, and that kind of wraps up that introduction. So that's what your assignment is to read um, the Nazareth and early Judean ministry. And now we have time for what would you like to talk about and ask about. We're going back to what you were to read was about the early years. And uh, you ask whatever you want. Some of this stuff, as I had said, is going to be very familiar to many of you, which is just fine. If you don't have questions for me, I'll have some for you, which would have been on, which would have been on page Seventeen. That's how many? Fifteen, sixteen. Now I'm not looking at the right. The questions for the early years. Is that sixteen in the new notebook? Seventeen. Seventeen. Okay. 
So what would you like to ask about? This, this outline covered things like the announcements of the angels to Zechariah, Mary, Joseph. Elizabeth visits her relative Mary. Mary sings the famous song of Magnificat. John the Baptist is born eventually. And they have a Latin word for these songs that his dad Zechariah sang, the Benedictus. These, by the way, these songs like the Magnificat Benedictus get implemented into uh, Christian worship settings, and we do use them. Magnificat maybe a little bit more. <clears throat> then we have the famous birth of Jesus, and I'd like to, if you don't ask, I'm going to ask you about this thing called the presentation, which okay, happened 40 years after. When you mentioned that, you know, it wasn't known to others other than the parents uh, about his divinity, that he was the Messiah. That yeah. Zacharias, who was a rabbi, I mean, did somebody say, keep it to yourself, Zach? You know, I mean, like, it's kind of strange, right? Yeah, it is kind of strange. He's not like saying, guess what? I mean, wouldn't you want to shout that from, if you were a Jew and yeah. you were a rabbi and you knew that this was the one to keep it quiet for 30 years. Keep it quiet for 30 years, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you'd think that he and Elizabeth might be telling people, but you know, a little but look at, look at Zechariah when it starts, even when he is told that his wife is pregnant and then and he doesn't believe it, right? And he yeah. can't talk for a year, yeah, or nine months, you know. So, so he was not sure if that was the right. You know, Zechariah doesn't come across as this. He thought, he thought his son was a little wacky doing what he was doing. He shouldn't have been. <laughs> yeah, but John the Baptist would have started about six months before Jesus in his ministry. Oh, just that. talking weird and dressing weird. And, he was normal before that. August <laughs> then. It's not as if it's less of a thing that it's it's less of that no one knew because the shepherds and the magi knew, but it's more of a thing that his ministry wasn't a, his public. Yeah, it was that wasn't his public image until after the baptism. Right. Right. Yeah. So I mean, even if they would have announced, you know, they're talking about a kid growing up and a young man or a teenager. It was just not God's timing yet for until he's of age to be in his public ministry, age thirty. What, what age did most rabbis start? 30. There? So 30 is the normal age when you start. Right. That's when they graduated yeah. from Mequon. Okay. Yeah, nowadays you get out of Mequon at 26. Okay. And uh, so that's pretty close, but at about 30 was the normal age when you would be considered trained and ready to go as a, as a public teacher rabbi. Ashley. Um, why would... Um John the Baptist like have started his ministry and or been in the wilderness like aside from like yeah that's that's really a good one everything about John's ministry was different from the norm normally these teachers or rabbis would be where the people are in the towns and villages you know but he's out like in Nowheresville he's dresses weird right he's got an odd diet you know it's all, it's all different. Why? To highlight that his message is different. The normal type of message that people were hearing from Pharisees and everything had drifted away from Bible truth and basically said, if you want to be close to God, follow the rules. And God's rules that he's given you in the scriptures, well, guess what? There's even more. We'll come up with our own. You've got to follow our rules, too. Basically, if you want to be next to God, you do it. You act, you do, you work, you think, you speak, you behave, follow the rules, and God will like you, you hope. That is, by the way, the inborn thing from our sinful nature. So John's message was different, and he ate and lived and talked and did everything in a different spot. Plus, Eight, seven hundred years earlier, God spoke through Isaiah and predicted it in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort ye my people. This is part of the Messiah. And then there's the announcement of John the Baptist is, is predicted there. Malachi predicted it 400 years before it happened, and John carried out exactly what was predicted. I don't know if that answered the no, it, 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 yeah. I'm See, it's, it's strange. And there's a preacher out in the wilderness? Really? Let's go check him out, you know? And then he has something to say to them that's different than they ever heard. You know? So he looked different and he talked. And he also looked like 
one of the first spokesmen of God that God would send to call his people back from sin, the old Israelite, Old Testament nation of Israel, right? One of the first spokesmen he sends to call them back is a dude named Elijah. Elijah. And so that, this last Sunday in church, you know, I talked about Elijah on Mount Carmel with the big battle and everything. But Elijah is the first in the line of, now he is not a Bible writer, but he's the first in the line of these prophets, these spokesmen that God would send. Elijah, his successor, Elisha, and there are others. Isaiah, Jeremiah, you know, right? So he's the first, and guess what? The last is the new Elijah, John the Baptist. Someone like Elijah will come. Well, that's John the Baptist, because Elijah had a rough kind of exterior and a rough kind of, you're sinners, you need a savior. You're, you're, without the savior, you're doomed, you know? And, and John the Baptist is that too. It's just, he's the new Elijah. So, but Dave had a question or comment. That was the point I was going to make. Yeah. He was supposed to be emulating Elijah. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot like Elijah's life, you know, was in seen in John. Thank you. I thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. That, Troy? Well, that just brought to mind then when, um, when, Jesus, when Jesus was coming down from the mountain with his three after the transfiguration, he says, Yes. Why did they say that Elijah must come first? He said, well, he did. They didn't see him. Yeah. They purposely ignored him. Because yeah. Elijah did come first, and that was John the Baptist. Which, by That's the way, he was talking about, right? which, by the way, you, we'll have this come up in our reading in another couple of weeks, but you mentioned the Mother Transfiguration, right? So it's six months before he's on the cross. Um, I don't know, but if, if, you know, if you're in Jesus' sandals, you know what's coming. And it's not just like, okay, spikes through my wrists and feet and, and suffering and being beaten. It's hell, which I think you all understand is a lot worse than physical torture. Hell is separation from God. It's the worst torture there could be. But that's what's on his mind. And at the same time, since he's born, he's carrying this, and now it's more intense, he's got my sins on his shoulders and yours. And everybody's. And that is a big burden to carry. And he knows what he's got to do. He's got to pay for that. All those sins, you've got to pay for all those things. That's on his mind. And if you're heading to Jerusalem to die in six months, this is not a happy thought. As God, he knows it's going to happen. As true man, this is not fun. So the Mount of Transfiguration is significant because it's a boost in the arm for Jesus. Because now his shining glory is. But who's there talking with him saying, you're on the right track, keep going. The first Bible writer, Moses, with the first predictions of the Savior, because Moses wrote Genesis, right? And the first prophet, Elijah. And they're the ones who are there next to him on the mount saying, we talked about you. You are the one. And then his father says what he said at his baptism, this is my son and whom I love. Listen, you know. So this is all, all tied together and connected. Elijah. It's a beautiful thing. So look at it. Um, and the part about Mary visiting Elizabeth, um, yeah. when Yeah. I was wondering what your thoughts were about the second part of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Is that just her understanding that this is the Son of God? Yes, and when the Spirit works, the Spirit always works together with words. And where the words of God are spoken, the Spirit is working. It's, it, it never, ever, ever are separate. It's not like a, you get the Spirit in your life and there's no Word of God. No, the words of God are working. And that means when you read them, Think about the words of God, study them, talk about, right now we're talking spiritual stuff. The word of God is working, right? So when the word of God is discussed, thought about, remembered, read, studied, the spirit is working. The Holy Spirit will not work unless he's using a tool. He doesn't work independently without his tool. A carpenter needs a hammer, a painter needs a brush. The spirit uses the words. He has chosen to use a tool, that's all. So when it says he's full of the spirit, that means these words and promises of God that Mary is announcing Guess what? And then Elizabeth herself had heard about her. This is all coming together with the promises they know and have heard about a Savior is coming, right? And then even his forerunner is predicted in Malachi and Isaiah. That's the new Elijah of John the Baptist. So this, these words of God are filling their heart. The Spirit is working, and their faith is generated and solidified. That's what that all is. I was thinking you might be asking about the baby leaping for joy. No, but you can tell me your 
That's an interesting comment that the Bible writer puts in there that Elizabeth says the baby leaps for joy in the presence of this, you know, that. So this, this is a remarkable thing. We, we do not have a specific Bible passage that says that babies pre-born come to faith. But that is an interesting passage that makes us wonder, hmm, you know. What the Bible does say is when they're out, baptize them. Because that will create faith in their heart. That's what the Bible says. But it is an interesting thing, if, especially if you are talking to someone who maybe there's a miscarriage or maybe there, you know, something like that happens, that you do have these comforting words that you say, God is not a God who is an ogre who's out to get, you know, pre-born babies or aborted babies. And that, that's, not, that's not our God. He's a God of love and compassion. Do we have a specific passage that God says all uh, stillborn babies or all aborted babies? They're automatically in heaven. We don't have a passage that says that. We don't know. But we do have a God who's gracious and loving. He's not a big ogre. But that we know. We do know that parents pray for the, for the baby, that the baby well, not only be born. They're in church. They're hearing God's word. Right. And then we also have this <laughs> incident that they're singing and they're praying and they're talking at home. They're reading the Bibles. And then they're pregnant and they're in church. So how much can a preborn baby absorb? I know when Anne was pregnant like eight and a half months and I come by and I, like that, the baby would move. So, you know, well, I didn't do that on purpose, but what? Nice dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah nice dad. But I mean, if you make a loud noise, it's not unusual that the moms know this, am I right? So, you know, how much does a preborn baby absorb from the words and promises of God that can they come to think, you know, we have to grant the possibility God can do that. But the Bible doesn't say that, so we don't say it's automatically true. But this is a passage that makes us go, well, hmm, you know, could it be? Now, we have to be careful because if we are going to be blind, uh, you know, just, just blatantly saying all preborn babies who are around the word of God and their moms are pregnant, they know they're inside the womb, they, if they hear the words of scripture and they're singing Jesus songs, I Jesus loves me this, I know at home and whatever, and they come to church, that every single baby uh, of, a, of a Christian family near the word of God is a believer when they come out. That that would be that'd be saying too much. We don't we don't know that. We do know they're born with a sinful nature. We do know they need forgiveness of sins. And God does say, well, here's a tool. That will offer them. It's called baptism. So baptize them. You know that that's that's why we do it that way. But this passage does give us some great comfort for those who are worried about a child that was not born in a normal way. Paul, oh, no, I'm sorry, I, was, I missed you before you hit me. So, so Mary is told about the birth of Jesus. Yes. At Nazareth. Yes. Of Noah. Yes. And uh, she goes down to she goes up, she goes up to, to Jerusalem, Jerusalem on the map down on the on the on the road up <laughs> up to the hill country around here. Yep. Uh, to announce to uh, well, she's going with Joseph. Joseph to Bethlehem. Okay. And the baby lives in her womb. Oh, she will, now she's coming to visit Elizabeth first. Yeah. She, she's yeah. Uh, no, right. She goes to visit yeah. Elizabeth. And she must go. And she's got to go back up north. Back up north. Yes. And it's curious in, in the next section that John Baptist doesn't know who Jesus is except when he shows up. He says, the Lamb of God. Well, Jesus would be growing up up north. Right. John is growing up his relative down south. But you would think that. You would think that the relative down south would like to see this magnificent child, son of God, yeah, and that's, sometime during. You'd think, or maybe when they, maybe when they came down for they come down for that Passover when Jesus is twelve. Then right. they stop in to see Zachary and Elizabeth. Hey, here's your cousin John the Baptist. You guys want to play ball for a while or something? Yeah. Shoot some hoops and then we're going to go to the temple. Or I don't, you know, but when I, we don't know. But when John is baptizing at the Jordan. He, he doesn't really recognize oh, Jesus. He, he does. But not by face. Or, here's, my, here's my cousin Jesus. 
But, yeah, but he recognizes him as the Savior. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knew who he was. Yeah. So that, you know, that's, that brings up a good point, though, because, again, the gospel accounts, this is not like an autobiography of Jesus. This is salvation history. So we don't have a lot of details about childhood and his growing up, and we can speculate what that must have been like. You know, he's up north in Nazareth learning how to do carpentry things with his, with his dad. And then... Um, then, then the public ministry starts. Troy. Well, just going back to what Paul was saying, I, I remember another account where John was saying, I knew him because the one who sent me told me the one on whom you see the spirit come down, right. he is the one. It made it sound like that's when he was knew that's Messiah. Well, it yeah. made it sound like that's when he first recognized it. Yeah, and I... You know, I don't know how to respond to that other than it's not like John is in totally, he knows the Messiah is coming, he's the forerunner, and he's been preaching for six months about this. And our, it's different than today. They don't have Facebook, you know, they don't have electronic communication, and they're not hanging out together. And they're 80 miles apart and by the, the journey they would take. It's a four-day walk. You'd think he'd know it was his cousin, too, from talking to his parents, but I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't say that he doesn't know Jesus as his cousin. Right. It doesn't say he doesn't know him. But they just didn't have that normal kind of, like we would think, aren't you getting together for Thanksgiving or something, you know, once a year or whatever, or, or Passover or whatever. Or with yes. other yeah. what? No photographs. Yeah, no, there's no photos or yeah, stuff like that. Maybe so, some drawings. Yeah, yeah. It's really all about God's <clears throat> timing and God's identity, and so the world would know John is here to set the stage and point, point to the Savior, and Jesus is the one. That's that's about as, that's how it adds up in my mind. So. I don't know if that helped. Pete. So that, to your question about why is there not much about his early life, you know, there is the account of when he's 12. Yeah, the one time. Yeah, so you got to believe that that's happening. Years, especially as he's you know becoming an adult, and but more in the privacy of the home, very likely with yeah. the parents, they knew. But you know, to go to Jerusalem and to be you know questioning and answering the rabbi's questions is is a pretty significant thing and an indicator for us. Yep, he is right. the one. And then for his parents, right? You know, it's a priority. So my here. point is, if he was doing that already at twelve, don't you think as he got older and closer to his true ministry that some of that was happening? People start to speculate that we. He we have no us. indication in Scripture that that right. would be the case. And think about if he's spending time in Nazareth, and then all of a sudden he's back on that Sabbath to read the Scripture and sign beside and they go, what? They, it's not like the previous three years he was saying, you know, in a couple of years I'm going to be doing public ministry and I'm coming. You know, right. so they, they're, they're like, they're not attuned to that. So the bottom line is we don't know. Yeah. For, for whatever reason, it's not important. For, yeah. for us and for our salvation. Yeah. So there's empty years, but a lot of stuff obviously happened that we don't know about. Yeah, and it mostly it's he's under wraps. You know, like you could Philippians chapter 2, right? Um, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. But see, he took on man, and he didn't do that. In, he wasn't flaunting his divinity, the apostle says. You know, he's not, he's not brandishing this about. And so that for a long time, this is all under wraps. The hidden God, you know, that's kind of what that is on purpose because if God shows up like Mount of Transfiguration right you know that like that right if God would show up in all his glory right now in this room I would just you know I'd be I'd be I'd be dead because it's he's too holy I can't you can't handle that. The only way that you could be in the presence of God is if your sins are paid for and covered. So that's what Jesus does and now if God shows up I'm not gonna be toasted and neither will you because I'm covered with the brightness of Jesus and I got the Jesus sunglasses on and I can, I can be in God's presence. It's all about being connected to our God. And uh, as a sinner, it's impossible. But that's, that's why he came to do what he did and that's what makes the New Testament so spectacular. Do you have anything else you'd like to ask it about these early years and stuff that you thought they... Well, yeah, all this talk about John the Baptist and Jesus has got my brain going. And, <laughs> and it's just, I, I, I've always known this, but I never thought about it. And, okay, so we talked about, did John know if Jesus was the Messiah when he baptized him? 
when his he baptism. baptized him and everything. Uh-huh. Well, he baptized him before Jesus started his ministry. Right. And yet when John the Baptist was in prison, because he was going to get beheaded because he called Herod yeah. on yeah. You know, adultery, yeah. he, his disciples came to John. Are you and he said, And then John said, go and ask him if he's the one or should we expect somebody else? Right, right. So why would he ask that unless it was, right. to, unless it was to point his disciples? Because we know some of John's disciples went to Jesus. Yeah. So the question is, is that John, have, you know, just having some second thoughts because yeah. his situation is oh. so terrible? Yeah. Can, is it possible for a believer who has really got a solid faith to have his, his or her faith go up and down once in a while? Has mine, you know, has yours, does that happen? Or could it be John sending them for their sake? that he wanted them to get the direct mess. He's been telling, you know, so there's some speculation about that account when he's in prison, sends followers to ask Jesus, are you the one? Is it asking for, John, you ask him on my behalf, or I want you to go ask on your behalf? There is some debate on that. But I have no problem saying that could well be John, you know, just get a little, you know, you're in prison, you're going to probably die, and, you know, you Really, if you're the one, how come I'm stuck here and he's having a bad day? And, yeah. you know, go tell Je- Jesus and go tell John. You know, the lame walk and the deaf hear and good news is being proclaimed. Go tell John. And we all know that when the head came off, he died a happy man going to heaven, right? You know, John the Baptist. That takes us uh, to near the end. Ashley, ask though. Um. In Luke 3, uh, verse 8. Luke 3, verse 8. Let's all go there. Um, John is talking to, I think, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, maybe. Sure. But um, what what does it mean when he's saying, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father? Like, what is he getting at? What is he getting at? Yeah. Many of the Jewish people then relied on having a, a connection with God simply because of DNA. We got the right bloodstream going on here. We got the right DNA. We got the right, you know, we're, 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 we are descendants of Abraham, so we are in the family of God. Well, Jesus said God can raise up stones to be in the family of God. You know, it's not your blood physical, you know, genetics that put you in the family of God. It's faith. So who are the real children of Abraham and the children of Isaac and Israel? Those who believe in Jesus Christ. The apostle makes that clear in Galatians and also in his letter to the Romans. True Israelites are not blood descendants of Abraham. They didn't, we don't need a savior because we're descendants of Abraham. So that's why he said that to them. Well, thanks everybody. This is, how fast does that go? So we'll take a run at it again next Wednesday.